0: What if I told you a computer, not a human, was making some big decisions about your life? If it's your resume that's mathematically plucked from a stack of hundreds. Or if a computer game says you're a fit, or not a good fit, into a potential workplace. Artificial intelligence claims to eliminate human bias from the hiring process. But critics say that its algorithms are just as flawed as the people who make them.
1: It's true that algorithms maybe have the promise of being bias-free, but in practice, since they just digest information that was generated in a biased world, they ingest those biases along with them.
0: The use of AI in hiring. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram.
2: And I am Brian O'Keefe. Michal, to my knowledge, I've never interviewed with a robot before. I mean, most of my resume experience goes back to the Mesozoic era because I've been at Fortune for so long, uh, happily and I never had to worry about like calibrating my resume and my CV to get past the AI gatekeepers.
0: Yeah, Brian, I'm right there with you, but you know, this has become really prevalent today and 55% of human resource leaders in the U.S. are using some kind of predictive algorithms in the hiring process today.
2: Yeah, and they're using it in a bunch of different ways. For instance, LinkedIn recruiter uses AI to rank candidates. A zip recruiter will use artificial intelligence to match candidates with nearby jobs that they might be well-suited for. When people are interviewing for jobs, the artificial intelligence system will analyze your facial expressions and movements. And then there are all these game-based tests. So imagine, Hall. the computer will ask you if you're right-handed or left-handed. And then you're supposed to hit the space bar with your index finger as many times as possible. So I could see how they would do that to see if you're going to be good at Nintendo Switch or something. But supposedly that will also provide some insight into your personality.
0: Right. And there's also a game where you pump a balloon on the screen by clicking on it. I'm not really sure what that tells a recruiter. But the more you inflate it, the more points you get, unless it pops.
2: Oh, that balloon example kind of stresses me out. I, I want to try it, but the idea of the balloon bursting, that really stresses me out. But you know, these systems are not designed uh, just to, to toy with this. They're actually based on neuroscience and they're being designed to try to make the process better. I mean, you know, inherent bias in the hiring process has always existed. And theoretically, AI can address that and at the same time, help companies avoid hiring people who won't be a right fit for their company, save time and money. So there's a lot of good intentions here.
0: Yeah. Personally, what freaks me out is the idea of somebody, or some system analyzing my facial expressions during an interview. I'm
2: analyzing your facial expressions right now.
0: <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm distraught, clearly. But uh, no, but you, you're absolutely right. The fact is that just like humans are flawed and biased, so are a lot of AI systems. And it's dangerous to believe that this technology can necessarily produce fair outcomes unless we're paying attention to what data is going in and how these algorithms are being set up.
2: And that brings us to Alexandra Gibbons. She's the president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology, which focuses on civil liberties and the digital age. We wanted to talk to Alex to get a better sense of the problems that may come along with using AI in hiring.
3: So the proponents of these tools will say, actually, here's a fairer way of measuring. We're not going to judge somebody based on their appearance. It's going to be how they perform on this game. And that's actually better than evaluating them by other metrics. When you're moving from individualized HR decisions based on human interaction to adopting these tools, there is a real difference in scale. Because suddenly, if there is a flaw in that design, this isn't one bad apple in the HR department who's conducting interviews in a potentially unfair way. This is now a tool that's being deployed across the organization. That has far bigger systemic effects that are problematic. So there have been some famous examples, and people are trying to learn from them. One was a resume scraping tool. So this was an automated system that tried to analyze candidates' resumes by comparing them to the resumes of the existing pool of employees at the company. Turned out, when they looked at it, that women weren't making it through at equal rates. Mm Why? Because the original set of employees were disproportionately male. So they actually looked and they figured out the participation on a women's sports team or attendance at a women's college was not being recognized as a sign of leadership or achievement. So that's one of the ways that this can go wrong. And you can think about that from a gender perspective. You could think about it from a race perspective or ethnicity perspective, names that don't appear common in the existing employee pool. And then we start to layer in some of these game-based tests. How do you make sure that those folks aren't being discriminated against on something that actually has nothing to do with their ability to do the job? It's just about how they interface with the test itself.
2: This raises all kinds of fascinating challenges. When you're putting artificial intelligence into place and you're kind of training it on data sets, we don't really know the conclusions it's drawing in a lot of these areas. I think that's part of the bigger point, right? You know, Because we've seen all these examples um, – in the early stages of artificial intelligence of the biases inherent in the the larger data that they're you know soaking in come out in these sort of horrifying ways that the creators you know never imagined they were going to see, right?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there are some efforts to audit these systems because you don't know what variables are being weighed and how. Uh, the whole point yeah. of AI is that it's finding patterns that the naked human eye wouldn't see and trying to draw conclusions based on those patterns. So there are some auditing steps that are being taken, but I worry that those are under-inclusive and I'll I'll explain why. Probably the main test that is used for auditing these tools now is that they will create either a dummy set of data or just take a, a particular test set and they will run people through the algorithm and then they will see, well, how are the women doing as compared to the men? And if it's not pretty close, then they'll go in and they'll tweak the variables, manually correct it until they're getting roughly parity in terms of the success rates of those two sets. They do that for race and they do that for gender. Now, obviously that still leaves out a lot of variation and range in the population, and it's not factoring in things like age and disability. So then you think, okay, well, could you do that for disability? But it actually gets really hard really fast. There are so many different forms of disability. So that means that a statistical analysis of how people with a particular disability are faring on this test actually gets really hard to do because there are just so many differences that you would be trying to control for. And the testing companies don't have an answer to that. When you say, well, you claim that you're doing these statistical audits, you say that that means that you are now audited for bias and people don't have to worry about it. They are telling a very small part of the story and not talking about all these other ways in which their tests might exclude people.
2: It does kind of raise a question in my mind, like, is there a successful way to do this? Can can we use technology to make the process better?
3: Some of the things that I think would help in terms of this process is one, being much more focused, not just on doing some superficial bias testing at the end, but a much more rigorous interrogation of the design of these tools at the beginning. So really trying to say, how does somebody's performance on this game directly correlate to their likelihood of performing the essential functions of the job? To my mind, a lot of these tests may not pass the snake oil litmus test there, right? Mm. You'd also be able to give notice to applicants. So you could say, we're going to be testing you. These are the things that are measured. If you think the test may discriminate against you, you can ask for an alternative test that goes a different way. And giving people that off-ramp, that plan B that they can go through that is perhaps more of an in-person interview, more of a kind of traditional process that allows someone to explain gaps on their resume or a different form of interaction. That would help make this a more personalized assessment.
2: What about on the corporate side? Are they defensive about this? Are they you know asking for your help to work their way through these issues? What's your typical reaction that you get when you're talking to head of HR at a big, like at a Fortune 500 company?
3: There's still a lot of education to go. So yes, we do think of them as a target audience for our advocacy. I go to these big employment conferences and a lot of times the, the vendors, the people developing these tools have booths and are selling to people. And so we have to try and make sure that we're out there saying, oh, wait, make sure you're asking these smart questions. Have you thought about the potential downsides? A lot of employers are ultimately trying to do the right thing. It's important for society. It's important for their brands. It's important for their legal exposure. Now, how do they actually operationalize those concerns to know exactly what to ask for and how to advocate within their company to make sure that these concerns are taken seriously? That part still needs work. So we're trying to give really practical, tangible advice to employers to make them as informed decision makers as could possibly be in this scenario, since the power ultimately lies with them.
0: So, Brian, you know, it's not just advocacy groups like Alex's that are trying to warn us about this, about the inherent bias that can come with AI. Regulators also are starting to pick up on it. And we're seeing some very basic laws being written around the use of AI by employers that are popping up in Illinois and Maryland. There's also a more far-reaching bill on the table in California.
2: We're seeing it in New York City, here where I am, too. The city council has a bill that would require vendors sell these automated assessment tools to audit them for bias and discrimination, and it would require the companies to tell applicants the characteristics that the test claims to measure so that you know what you're getting into when you start the process. There are already companies, Michal, that audit algorithms. Who knew that that was a business opportunity? But there's always a business opportunity when something new is happening. I spoke with Jacob Appel. He is the chief of strategy for a company called Worka. That stands for the O'Neill Risk Consulting and Algorithmic Analysis. They're consultants that help organizations and companies think about their risk around using AI. Jacob says that we need to dispel some of the mystery around these algorithms.
1: I think a big part of the risk here is that there's a mystique around AI and algorithms, like what are they going to predict? What how are they going to behave? That mystique needs to get broken down seriously. So at its most basic level, an algorithm is a way to detect patterns and then usually to recreate those patterns. So we shouldn't be surprised if algorithms like tend to make lucky people luckier and less lucky people even less lucky. They're going to, by their very nature, they're going to find those past patterns and seek to extend them into the future.
2: What would be like a, a typical scenario where a company or organization hires use consultants to come in and audit or evaluate an algorithm?
1: We get a lot of calls because companies are scared. In particular, they're scared that an algorithm that they are using might be doing something that's either illegal or uh, that might look bad if it came out in a New York Times headline or a Fortune headline. They don't want to be caught unawares with this algorithm, like spinning out of control or doing something that they're uncomfortable with. So they call us to investigate. So we need to know who is subject to the decisions being made by this. Is there any appeals process? Is there a review process? What sorts of decisions in people's lives are being dictated by the predictions of this algorithm or model? So we're particularly interested um, in this episode on
2: how algorithms and AI are being used in human resources inside companies and organizations for hiring performance reviews. What do you see in your experience so far about sort of some of the common weaknesses or strengths of you know algorithms being used in the HR process?
1: One thing that's nice about algorithms in this regard is that they are just a machine. Contrast that with a human hiring manager looking at resumes, for instance. Study after study have shown that human hiring managers display all kinds of biases when they read resumes. They have bias towards names of schools that they recognize. They even have biases over how the name of the individual sounds. An algorithm, again, as a concept, like doesn't have those things. It just has whatever is programmed into it. But that's exactly where the problem comes in, right? Let's say you were using an algorithm to assist you in hiring, and you put in a definition of success that was like, who's been promoted the most frequently and the highest within our company in the past? Mm -hmm. Sure, an algorithm can find for you. Sounds rational. Right. An algorithm will certainly help you find applicants who look like people who have been promoted quickly and often in the past in our company. Great. Great. But here's the problem. What if historically men were promoted more quickly and more often than women? Well, that's going to be baked into your vision of success. We won't have bias-free algorithms. The best we can do is hope to really understand what the biases are in the algorithms and to have an informed and serious conversation about what we can live with. So I wanted to ask you, you guys got drawn
2: into a little bit of a kerfuffle um, that got some attention where... HireVue, which is a hiring software company that a lot of big companies use, there were some allegations that it's technology using video interviews to assess candidates was biased and they hired you as a consultant to audit the process and you did your very thoughtful review of that. And then they put out a press release saying, you know, we got the seal of approval. And then there was a lot of criticism of how they interpreted your audit Help us make sense of this. What what can we learn from this whole sequence of events?
1: The number one thing to learn is that audits should be mandatory and there should be regulatory requirements for disclosure. We want audits of algorithms to be required in particular industries. Hiring is one of them. And we want for audit reports to be public domain. People should be able to read the result of an AI audit. Since those rules and regulations don't exist yet, the companies doing audits are the ones who raise their hand and choose to do it. And HigherView is one company like that. They raised their hands and said, hey, we want you to come take a close look and we're ready to listen to what you have to say and so on. Further down the line, when it came to releasing the report, that ended up in, you know, as a discussion within view, what do they want to do as a business in terms of their business objectives and so on? They made their decision. We would rather live in a world where regulators force them to release the report in a certain way, at a certain time, etc. So that's the positive lesson to take away, is the need for a stronger set of regulations and laws around algorithmic audits.
0: So, Brian, is this another example of tech companies trying to regulate themselves before regulations are forced upon them?
2: I think there's an aspect of that involved here. I mean, you know, there are regulations coming, it looks like. This is also a fairly new area and you know, a very sensitive one. And I think companies, as we've discussed, are trying to design systems that are gonna make the process better, but this is very touchy stuff. So I think this is definitely gonna be an area where there's like a push and pull between regulation and scrutiny from the public and how the companies can manage this on their own.
0: So Brian, have you ever had to write a job description? I'm guessing yes. And if so, what are you thinking as you're writing it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, writing a job description has felt in the past as much like art as science. You want to make sure that you're writing it so that you attract people with the right set of skills, hopefully, for sure. In the past few years, I think people have started to think about this process and how can we Write job descriptions that are going to bring in applicants from a wider pool, and it, it sort of felt like we were doing it, you know, in a void without any kind of feedback on what's really working. So the idea that technology could help make that better is definitely very appealing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You said it's kind of a mix of art and science. I think that's really spot on. And companies are using. AI to help with that, you know, to help sort of marry human and technology uh, and make this a better process. So not only weeding out certain candidates, which is what we talked about, you know, AI earlier on in the episode, but also in attracting people that you want to attract. We spoke with Kieran Snyder. She's the co-founder and CEO of a company that does exactly this. It's called Textio. And she calls her technology an augmented writing product it's basically helping people like you Brian write up job descriptions that are going to do what they want them to do
4: think of it like a word processor that is hyper tuned for hiring and candidate communication so You're writing job descriptions. You probably have Textio integrated into your LinkedIn or your Gmail or your Outlook. You're writing blogs. You're writing social media posts. You're writing your career site copy. All of these are places where you're writing and as you're writing, Textio is giving you feedback on changes that you might want
0: to make. How does the system know what to suggest for me and what's the technology that is able to do that?
4: Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of layers that make the guidance that a recruiter or a hiring manager might see when they're using Textio. So the first is what has been effective for similar kinds of writing before? If I'm hiring an engineer in San Francisco, there are patterns that are more or less likely to get responses, and those are different than if I'm hiring an accountant in New York City. On top of that, there are also elements of your employer brand. So you have some idea how you want to come across. So the other thing that comes in is you program Textio, you tune it with the sort of brand categories and language that you do want to accentuate and those that you don't. And then finally, there's another layer which is editorial. So Textio will flag language that is harmful, regardless of the data, regardless of your brand. So if you're saying something that has historically sexist, racist, ableist, ageist roots, Textio will flag that for you. So it's really the, the core technology has all three of these layers. And all of that creates the suggestions that Textio gives an individual writer.
0: Is there another example you can think of of language that you uh, changed in this, you know, more recent update.
4: Yeah. So we have a lot of international customers who hire in several markets and they often have a strong North American presence, but it's really problematic in certain markets to sound colloquially American. That's not appealing in the market and it's it's can be culturally insensitive. Language like mom and pop shop right? It's specifically a cultural signifier that says to people, this doesn't make sense for me in Australia. This doesn't make sense for me in London. Like, I don't even know what that is,
0: but I know it's American and it's not for me. Can you give me some examples also on the recruiting side? Because there are just widely used practices and language and job listings that are not egregiously offensive, but are going to definitely turn off some of the candidates that a company may want to attract, including more diverse candidates. So give me a few examples of where companies stumble when they're recruiting.
4: Well, maybe we could start with the word diverse. So this is a kind of an interesting example. So it's pretty common for hiring managers or recruiters to say that they're looking for diverse people when they specifically mean Black, Latinx, or Indigenous individuals, or maybe they mean women, right? And an individual isn't diverse. Diverse is a group level property. It's not a property of an individual. And so when you you apply the term diverse to an individual, like we'd like to hire a diverse person for this role, you often can make the candidate feel tokenized because you're tokenizing them, <laughs> and you know it's a very different thing than saying we want a diverse set of candidates to consider for this role, which means you actually want a range and a spectrum of people from a lot of different backgrounds. So I think that's actually a, a super common uh, example that I think people are trying to do the right thing actually, but ends up uh, undermining you know the goal that they're going for.
0: What about like for a long time in Silicon Valley? I don't know if this is still. A practice, but I kept seeing like rock star, Mm -hmm. you know, rock star developer. Is that something that works? Does that resonate with candidates or who does that attract?
4: Um, That attracts white men primarily. (laughs) Um, Rockstar specifically and Ninja along with it have had kind of a bad PR campaign against them for the last few years. So I suspect today they disincentivize most candidates from most backgrounds. Historically, those terms specifically uh, result in fewer women applying to roles. I think companies that might have been inclined to use it three, four years ago would probably think again right now. Um, Another really interesting one that we see a lot, which is a perfect example of something that's not egregiously offensive, but actually is culturally signifying, are corporate sort of cliche or jargon terms like synergy or KPIs, right, or ROI. And it's not that the word synergy is offensive beyond being a cliche, like there's nothing inherently racist about using the word synergy, but it grew up in predominantly white corporate culture. And so when you have a lot of that language in one place, it can start signifying to candidates who does and doesn't likely feel like they belong. That's not the intent of that language. And it's not offensive, right? It's a little cliche and trite, but it's not offensive but it's still problematic.
0: We're still in COVID, hopefully coming out of the other side sometime soon. But obviously over the last year or so, the way that people hire has changed pretty drastically. It's really hard to do in-person interviews. Candidates can't come and see an office. So how have employers changed the way that they utilize Textio? I think it starts from
4: what candidates have changed in terms of their expectations, right? So you're right. You can't meet people in person. Whereas before you would pop into the office, you might have coffee or lunch, you know, you'd have casual conversations, you'd have formal interviews. And on both sides, the employer side and the candidate side, that provides a lot of information, right? You can really make an assessment of, is this the place I want to be working? And because that hasn't been an option Many employers are diving much more deeply into the written artifacts. Like, how are they communicating with candidates throughout the process? And that could be their job posts, of course. That could be the email outreach they send. But it's also broader than just hiring for one specific role. It's what is on our career site? How does that come across? Because that's our front door now. We're not inviting people into a physical office, we're inviting them onto our career site. What are we? posting on our social media? What blogs are we including? Like all of this stuff has much more resonance with candidates because it's the only signal candidates can really get.
2: Michal, it's really interesting to me that, you know, Textio uses AI at the center of what they're doing, but there's also this other layer to it. There's this editorial process that involves humans.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's just this marriage of art and science like you were talking about earlier, Brian. And I think another thing that's really interesting here is that Kieran said in this time of COVID, getting the words right, it matters even more so than before. You can't bring applicants and candidates in to your office, you can't meet them in person, those opportunities for, you know, first impressions, for figuring out who's a fit and what kind of people want to come and and work for you. It's just, it's so much more limited.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's using the technology to connect with humans, to connect humans with humans and, and to, you know, bring in people and evaluate them in a fair way. And I'm also kind of heartened that humans still have a role in the process of hiring humans, at least for a little bit longer.
0: Yeah, although I'm still figuring out what that bubble popping game tells us about anybody, but, you know, I'll let that rest. All right, that is it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world.
2: The Brainstorm podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive Producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. So uh, I need to take a break now and remove the seven times I said ninja on my resume.